This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Here's the song that we'd like to do for all the younger set of people, the teenagers and what have you. This one's called Vacation Zope. Vacation's over. It's over. It's over. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and happy Independence Day to all you stackers in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. While you're celebrating this national holiday, let's also celebrate some of the business moves that one of my favorite founders made all the way back in the 1700s. Who else but Mr. George Washington? Today, we welcome historian John Burlow to talk about George Washington, entrepreneur. Also, ever wonder what it means to be the executor of an estate when a loved one passes away? What should you know, and what are you supposed to do? Rest assured, stackers, we'll point you in the right direction. Of course, we'll still be free to toss out the Haven Lifeline to Sean, who has a 401k asset allocation question, and my trivia is going to be an absolute blast. Because, you know, like fireworks. And now, two guys who are still mentally on vacation, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. That is a rumor, vicious rumor, Doug. We are back, and more than just back sitting in the microphone, we are back and ready and focused to bring you some big money this summer. And across the card table from me, the guy with wads of cash he's ready to give it away mr og stacks on stacks on stacks all you do all in two dollar bills 
Because that tells everybody you're a baller. <laughs> I do like that. When I give somebody a 20 for a thing that cost a dollar and they give me $19 in ones and they apologize, I'm like, hey, don't feel bad because yeah. I got this fat wallet. That You saved me a trip to the bank. <laughs> Look at how loaded I am. I'm the king. You see this fat stack? Yes, that is yeah, me. And then you put the like the Monopoly 100 around the backside of it? Just, just to make sure people know that I got it going on. Yeah. Good. Uh, how was your, your holiday, your 4th of July? It was a, an epic party. You should have been here. You should have been at my house, Joe, because 4th of July at my house is out of control. What's funny is I was at your house and you weren't at your house. Oh, was it out of control? It, it was, it was epic. You should have been there. I have to tell you, there's no beer left in the fridge and, uh, yeah, you might want to do something about that mess we made. Well, I was going to remind you, there's cameras all over the place, right? <laughs> oh, boy. So, not for nothing, but uh, just like you said, you've got a mess to clean up. <laughs> we got a, it's a good time, and we are back. We're so excited. Today, we're going to talk about George Washington, but George Washington not as the number one leader of this country, but George Washington as an entrepreneur. We're going to talk entrepreneurship with our first president. But first, we've got some headlines, so let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Market Watch. I thought this is a great way to start the next eight weeks, OG. Barbara Kohlmeyer wrote this. She writes, don't let your dream of being a 401k millionaire fade during the pandemic. We heard from Josh Dietz from T. Rowe Price at our YouTube event a few weeks ago that if you were behind on your retirement planning, the pandemic probably put you a little further behind. However, Barbara writes, the global pandemic has turned into one scary roller coaster ride, but months into the crisis, the argument for investors to keep calm and carry on is sticking even for those who can remember Black Monday of 1987, the dot-com bubble, or the 2008-2009 financial crisis, stock market volatility brought on by rolling pandemic headlines has been one for the history books, and it might not be over by a mile. Americans saving for retirement can be forgiven for wincing at the quarter ending March, which left the S&P down with a 20% loss, the worst performance since the financial crisis, and the June quarter looked better at the time this was written, which was just before the end. Index was up 21% at that uh, time. Of course, that small comfort to the 20 million Americans out of work as of May who are going to struggle to keep contributing. For those managing to hang on to a job right now, there are threads of hope, though, as financial services giant Fidelity points out that employers look largely dedicated to those vital 401k matches. A survey of 302 attendees representing companies whose plans managed by Fidelity found that 82% aren't considering any match reductions or suspension of plans. Fidelity manages, by the way, 29% of the nation's 401k or 403b plans. Got to tell you, man, a lot of people don't contribute to the 401k. And if your employer during this whole thing has held on to the match, well, even if they have an OG, man, if you can find a way to keep contributing, keep putting money in, it's fantastic. I think there's two messages here. Firstly, if you've been able to keep your job, if your pay hasn't been impacted and everything from a money standpoint is fine and you did something different, then 
continuing the plan, that's pretty foolish. Even if preemptively you said, oh, I got to stop this just to save cash just in case. Maybe, but you should have long since flipped that switch back on. And if you haven't, you've got to do it today. If you're in the position where you weren't able to, or there's some reductions, or you had some cash flow issues, or your spouse or partner lost their job, and, and you had some time where you're thinking, okay, I'm really more concerned about putting food on the table right now than worrying about what my retirement's going to look like at 65, that's perfectly okay. I think it's important to know that you're not behind the eight ball. I hate the fact that people will say, oh gosh, you're really behind the eight ball. No, I just kind of lived my life, and I had to take care of this other more pressing issue. But don't let that be a lifetime crutch either. Understand that maybe you slowed down, maybe you stopped, maybe even, heck, you took money out of your 401k to help put food on the table or to help pay the mortgage bill or whatever. It is what it is. To send to your favorite podcaster. To send to your favorite podcaster would be one thing. Have you been getting money? (laughs) Oh, look at the, look at the time, look at the time. Remember we talked about just before the break, that TikTok video? Yeah. I was going to make a TikTok video where I told people that you could save into your 401k or forget that woman with annuities. You should give it to your favorite podcaster. And the rationale there is 401ks give you this silly match. Companies might take it away. This piece says that, that they won't. But your favorite podcaster will spend it. Guaranteed. What I'm really impressed by the fact of is that like literally within the opening six minutes of the, of this eight weeks, the, it has gone completely off the rails. Like we were having a real serious, you know, I was making some really good points on being okay with where you are money wise. This is a part of the discussion. Gotta, I think it's a part of discussion. That you should this is, pay you from your 401 They keep talking about the redistribution of wealth. Don't you think that this is an important part of the redistribution of wealth? Nothing to say about this. Listen, no. if you take money out Maybe of your not. 401k and you feel bad about that, don't feel bad. Understand that the plans have changed now and you just have to get back on the horse and saddle up. You can catch up. That's no problem. Don't yeah, let it be a lifetime thing. They say not having a plan is still having a plan. It's a very disorganized plan. With nobody in charge, but uh, but it still is a plan. Mm-hmm. Take money out, find out what the damage was, and uh, put it back in. The second piece, and by the way, there's something else there too, OG, with all the people out of work. If you're lucky enough to have a job, I would still be thinking now about where does my income come from? And how do I shore that up and make it more stable? Like, are there, are there different places where I could get my income stream so that I know that if if one spigot turns off, that maybe another one is there to help catch me? What do you think of that? Well, I, th- I mean, what you're talking about here is some variation of financial independence. You're thinking, how do I make enough money so that my money makes enough money that I don't have to make money anymore? Darn it. Brad's got to put that on a T-shirt one of these days and with a little TM because I've, I've not heard that anywhere but me. So, trademark, OG. But um, um, whether that's through side hustles, whether it's through freelancing, whether it's through real estate, whether it's from dividends from your stock portfolio, all of those are places Kidney that you sales. Look at. God, Lord, it's just impressive how, how it's just, just such a... <laughs> 
just a radical just jerking of the wheel in one direction. One of us is acting like a, an adult today, and one of us is still hungover from the 4th of July party. <laughs> just straight up. You've got some good beer out there, man. Yeah. It's a, um, and kidney sales. Yes, and kidney sales. Yes, you could sell a kidney. Yes. At least one. And... um Make a few bucks. That is the lesson. Don't sell the other one. You're not wrong. <laughs> Our second headline comes to us from The Ascent. And I thought this is important, maybe evergreen, but we just don't get to talk about this enough. Executor of a state, what it means and what you need to know. This is an important piece written by Dana George that we'll link to also in our show notes. People want to dive in. But the things to know about being an executor of an estate. Dana writes, it's an honor to be asked to execute an estate. Whether you accept the honor probably depends on how much time and energy you can dedicate to a job that can be surprisingly time consuming. As executor, you act as the voice of the deceased, making sure their final wishes are respected. By the way, when I, when I've seen problems with estate plans, even estate plans that are written well, OG, it's that the wrong person was the executor and they decided to do something different than what was written. It's actually a real easy job. Just do what it says in the document, assuming that there is a document and you're, you're going to do well. I was going to say the part where the author says it's an honor to be an exec. That's not an honor. It's usually most people don't want to do this because you're the person who gets all everything rolling downhill. So the estate plan, the will, the trust, whatever says, Billy gets 40%, Susie gets 60%. Who's got to deal with that mess? the executor, who gets 0%, except for the fact that you can charge for it. And a real good estate planning attorney will remind you that you can charge for your work. And then you'll very discreetly remind the beneficiaries of the estate that the longer this takes, the more money they don't get. Then it truly is an honor, as you get your 10% first. Because <laughs> Papa's getting paid. That's right. <laughs> can, that's, you, that's, can you see that conversation? Just want to let you know. Papa's getting paid. But you know what happens? So think of it this way, though, and an attorney can correct me on this, but this is my understanding, is that if, if your estate goes to probate and the attorneys have to deal with it, guess who gets the first check? The attorneys. Of course. And then what's left gets split up. So. Then there's 10% to the, or whatever percentage to the executor yeah. and then the rest. Yeah. Uh, before death, it says, once you agree to be the executor, ask, ask for a copy of the last will and testament. Familiar yourself with it. Make a note of who will inherit property. If there are any co-executors, man, co-executors. Oh, okay. what do you, don't do that. But please don't do that. You'll just have fights. Pick somebody who will do what it says in the document and who's okay with being seen. It's a little bit of a jerk, don't you think? Like the people. Well, I was going to say there's a difference here. The thing I would add is there's a difference between being an executor and a trustee. An executor is somebody who's executing all of the things that need to get done. Boom, 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 boom. These are the things that get done. A trustee would be somebody who's going to be in charge of something for an extended period of time. So if you have a trust that you leave money to a young uh, child, let's say, and you want it to sit there and be managed appropriately for their benefit 20 years from now, that's not an executor job. That's a trustee job. And that's perfectly fine to have a voting committee, so to speak, or maybe some checks and balances at least to make sure that the trustee isn't putting all your money in, you know, Bitcoin or something. But an executor, yeah, you need you need a CEO, not two CEOs of your estate. 
I also know a lot of people that won't, uh, I'm, well, I'll just tell you my story. The person where I know I'm going to be the executor of the will and the trustee of the trust, OG, that person has told me I have that job. I've requested the documents and he said, I'm not going to show them to you until I pass away. So yeah, that's very common. So they, they still can say no, people are private, but I do like the idea of requesting it and, and seeing what you're getting yourself into. The cool thing was though, this person told me where everything is. He said, I've made a list. Here's where you find it. Great. Make sure that you know where to find everything after death. It says you're going to have to say, I've got something to add to that. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about a little bit later. All right. You're going to have to, after death, it says order death certificates. You're going to need a bunch of them. A lot of death certificates. So gee, a lot of people, a lot of people are going to want to see a death certificate. So like, uh, like order 20 of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next is file. The will has to be filed with the local probate court. Even if probate is unnecessary, uh, generally probate deemed unnecessary when the estate's small, but you still have to file that there was a will. Third, make notification calls. Among those should be who should be notified. Social Security Administration, credit card companies, any other creditors, the the VA, and any other government agency with a financial interest. Apply for a taxpayer ID for the estate. You'll have to go to irs.gov and fill out a very simple form. I've done that before when establishing businesses. It takes 30 seconds. Yeah, not not a big deal. Feels like a big deal, not a big deal. Then you open a, a bank account in the name of the estate so that you can then, as money comes in, you have a spot. Do not commingle that money with your own money. That would be very bad. And then last, oversee the maintenance of property. You have to care for things till it's distributed and then complete an inventory so that everybody knows where things are, pay taxes and fees, pay for other services, then distribute assets, dispose of property, file a final accounting so everybody knows where everything went, and then uh, close the account. There's a few tips they have in here, OG. You want to get your takeaway on these. Decide whether you need an attorney. My answer to that is, man, does that help. Even if you can do 99% of the stuff yourself and maybe can to avoid fees with a small estate, knowing a good attorney that you can turn to and ask questions, I think, uh, is going to be really important to this process. Well, and you don't have to use the one whose name is all plastered all over all the legal documents. You can. They might have some understanding of, of the situation, or they might have drawn up the estate planning documents 22 years ago and have no idea who that person is. Yeah. So what I would add to that is whether or not you need legal assistance would be probably increases if you are not close, especially in the same state as the decedent. If you're trying to manage it from a further away process, much more difficult to do. Uh, plus, you've got different rules to deal with. You know, if you live in Washington and you're trying to settle an estate in Louisiana, it's just going to be harder for you to harder for you to do. So, next is keep careful records, and that's that. There's nothing to talk about there. Keep very very yeah. careful records. So, uh, everything's above board. Everybody knows what's going on. Uh, we'll link to that one because that's a great uh, checklist for people to have in our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com. I think it's takeaway number one is if you're an executor, I think know the rules and know what you're getting into. And uh, headline number two, if you've come across some financial calamity because of the pandemic, don't let your dream be a 401k millionaire fade. OG, you can get it back. 
We were super excited to talk to John Burlaw about George Washington. And what a great guy to write the history of our first president when it comes to being an entrepreneur, because he is an American economist who lives in shock. Guess what city he would live in? If he's an economist, likes George Washington, Mount Vernon. He does. He, he has a tent in the parking lot in Mount Vernon. Maybe we'll ask him that. He's also the director of the Center for Investors and Entrepreneurs, which was formerly the Center for Entrepreneurship. You can watch YouTube videos of him talking on behalf of entrepreneurs in front of uh, government committees. I think that would be slightly intimidating. Of course, you've seen his work everywhere, including Barron's, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, National Review, Policy Review. He's all over the place. But right now, he's not all over the place. He's right here. John Burla here to talk about George Washington, entrepreneur. And I'm my dad, Shortwave. It's our new friend, John Burla. John, how are you, man? I'm good. A pleasure to be on, Joe. Well, I'm so happy you're with us. I, I guess I have to ask, why are you in George Washington? Is it because you live close to Mount Vernon? What got you excited about this? Yes, I do live close to Mount Vernon, about seven miles in Alexandria, Virginia. And I guess just figuring when Mount Vernon started dedicating some things to Washington's business enterprises, like the fishery, like the flour mill, and like the whiskey distillery, which actually makes whiskey based on Washington's recipe now, I thought, you know, there's really things that I've never learned about. And I was just intrigued. I wanted to go behind the face and the dollar, but because I think most Americans and I myself before I started this, while they can admire and, and respect him, they can't relate to him in a way like, say, Jefferson or Hamilton or Adams or any of those or, or Franklin, the other founding fathers. So I just wanted to see if there was a way to relate to him. And I found him to be both very human and at the same time, I just marveled about he had a creativity that in some sense was as strong as that of Jefferson's and Franklin's. Well, and I was wondering about that as I was reading your book, John, I was, I was thinking about all the things that he's responsible for that we'll get to here in a minute. Do you think that it's his mind as an entrepreneur that made him a better leader or was it his leadership qualities that made him a better entrepreneur? Kind of the chicken or the egg question, I guess. I think it's both. It's both chicken and egg. One of the things I discovered in his book is that there's still a mystery about why on first ballot he was chosen to lead the Continental Army when everybody from every other state, Adams did vouch for him. He had sort of a mixed record in the French and Indian War. So some had said the French and Indian War, but others were doubting they could just be just that. But I noticed when Adams' speech, which is the only record that we have of that nominating him to be the general, he mentioned specifically Washington's, quote, independent fortune. And so people knew by that time, Washington was actually trademarking the flour he made in his flour mill from the, the wheat that he grew when he stopped planting tobacco all around the colonies to England and to the West Indies. So he basically had a nationally known brand there so that people were seeing some of his business leadership it may have been even been a factor in him being chosen. But yes, I think, you know, understanding incentives, other things are what uh, 
are what made him a good leader and familiarity with the business world and not just farming, but commerce. And one of the things he did, people say, you know, he never went to college, but people say, oh, Washington learned this from experience. Well, he did learn a lot from experience, but he read plenty. He read everything like when he wanted to better his horsemanship, he read books on how to be a good horseman. And he read, of course, famously as uh, as a child, the rules of civility, how to act in public company. So he was constantly reading up. He probably read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith about economic systems. So he was a voracious reader and, and largely self-educated. And he learned a lot of his things from books. I feel like, like a lot of entrepreneurs, as you know, he kind of had this just-in-time curriculum, like as he needed to know something, he went and got it. But where did his love of uh, books begin in the first place? Where did that come from? There isn't a lot known about his early education, but we do know that he was reading from uh, an early age. Well, a lot of it came from his mother. His mother was a reader, and yet she's disparaged by Ron Chernow and other historians. I mean, I like most of what Ron Chernow, you know, who wrote uh, the book on Hamilton that was made into that big musical that they're stream. But he and others have wrongly painted Mary Washington as as illiterate when at the same time he was talking about some of the books that she had. So she read books like about religious books, about contemplation. And the historian Kevin Hayes has remarked that, you know, parents who are readers usually have children who are readers. So I think he learned he did learn that from his parents. His father died from his 11 and his father traveled a lot. So it was mostly from his mother, who he had a contentious relationship with. But he, he learned that from the very beginning. And he probably had some private tutoring as a child, though there really aren't very good records on that. But we know since he kept records, really business receipts, others, when he was 14, he was always reading because you have things like the book order invoices. The the business records themselves, I mean, they tell a story and they tell what he was reading at what time, plus there are inventories in his library. So as far as I can see, it's a lifelong love passed on from his mother. The recent History Channel show, which which I think really, really broadened it. Of course, a lot of that is dramatization, I remember, focused a lot on him, it, it kind of implied, John, that he had a chip on his shoulder because of losing his dad at such a, a young age. Do you find that that was the case as he grew up, that he really felt like because of his lack of an education and lack of a father figure after, what, 11 or 12, that he he kind of felt that? I think he was self-conscious, but like many entrepreneurs, a disadvantage can be an advantage because it's what he always did to better himself, to read the rules of civility, to act like he did in polite company. And people marveled, you know, how does he have the manners of a royal court when he's never went to college, but he had been reading up on it. Let's dive into some of his inventions, because it is fascinating, as I was was going through the book, just how many things he had his hand in, how many things he was responsible for. If you don't mind peeling off two or three for us, that would be a fantastic start. Well, he was always making things like more efficient plows, and he had a 16-sided barn where the horse actually would move the wheat sort of in a mechanical way. And was, uh, you know, and of course was, you know, I guess this is not an invention, but was a pioneer considered by conservationists as far as crop rotation. He stopped planting tobacco because, you know, not because he thought it was necessarily bad for you, but he thought it was hurting the soil and that there was a more domestic market. So he planted wheat and hemp. And of course, some of the fishnets were made from hemp. 
but he was also a patron to early American inventors like James Rumsey, who he met when he was traveling through what is now West Virginia, and he helped support Rumsey in the invention of the steamboat. Rumsey is considered the co-inventor of the steamboat along with John Fitch, and you know Robert Fulton commercialized it sort of in the same way Henry Ford did the car 20 years later, but Washington hired him for the Potomac as a private citizen for the Potomac Company to improve navigation on the Potomac River so Rumsey would have time to do his experience and then championed in Virginia and Maryland state patents before the Federal Patent Office was created. And then when Washington was president, he signed the patent for James Rumsey and John Fitch for the steamboat. And the steamboat, I mean, it's really the steam engine in general, but the steamboat, I mean, that was the first time, you know, a vessel could move upstream or a vessel could move without being pulled by current or animals, you know, mechanical like we do today. So that really was a pioneering invention. And he was fascinated, for instance, by balloonists. He welcomed balloonists with cannon fire when he came there and actually wrote to someone, said we, he used the term, quote, flying through the air, that we may be traveling there. Instead of plowing the ocean, we'll be flying through the air. So he had an imagination and welcomed inventors. And that was at a time when we really didn't revere inventors, like starting in the 19th century, and we do now, when a lot of them were thought to be crackpots. But Washington helped really change the culture as far as invention was. Invention is one thing. And as you know, with your work in entrepreneurship, making a profit is another Was he really profitable as an entrepreneur? Well, he had a series of, he had like many entrepreneurs, had a series of setbacks. And there was always the question of, you know, there was really no currency in the, that tobacco was basically the currency. You got credit for shipping tobacco. So there were times that, you know, even though he was land rich, he didn't have any currency to trade with. But especially after he was president, the whiskey distillery, he was one of the wealthiest men in the country. Whereas, you know, some of the other founding fathers, and this is no, you know, doesn't say anything about their virtue, like Jefferson died in, in debt and, uh, and other things. Washington was, yes, managed the, his ledgers, that, that includes the receipt, the ledgers are still available. And he, and Martha helped him with this. He and Martha, you would negotiate very shrewdly for things they imported from England and what they sent to England in the colonial days and then afterwards with everyone. Would you say that Martha also was very much an entrepreneur? I would say she was. The problem, one of the ways that it's it's been hard for us to get to know both George and Martha is that Martha burned nearly all the correspondence between them, as was the custom for many families, you know, upon George Washington's death. So whereas there are like over a thousand letters between John and Abigail Adams, there are only three letters between George and Martha. But Martha was, uh, she came from a modest background, like George Washington did. She married up, she married Daniel Custis, one of the richest, for her first husband, one of the richest men in Virginia, had two kids with him. And then, you know, he he died of a, of a fever, which was common then. Her brothers were all younger and she didn't really have any a, a man until she married George Washington to marry, to, I mean, to manage the estate. So she negotiated with British merchants on tobacco prices. She, as far as when her first husband had loaned money, she went and collected debts and did all the things. And that continued. I mean, Washington did most of the, I'd say most of the business for Mount Vernon, but Martha still ran things like the textile shops when she was visiting 
when she was on the battlefield with George, she wrote back to see how the textile making was going and other things. So she was a pretty shrewd businesswoman herself. There have been a lot of discussions lately, John, as you've seen around the country about our founding fathers. George Washington was in Virginia, was a slave owner. Tell me about George Washington and slavery. Well, as I said at the beginning, he was human. And this is what he grew up with. It never, as a child, I mean, it, it seemed to be the natural order of things for him. But he became gradually more skeptical of it and saw that it was wrong. And he wrote that to friends. As early as 1774, he, when he co-authored the Fairfax Resolves, which was sort of a precursor to the Declaration of Independence, a list of grievances with Britain, he condemned the slave trade as cruel. And he wrote letters about it, knowing that letters were likely to be published. They were published in his lifetime. He, sent, I think, since the late 1770s, refused to, in almost all circumstances, break up families. And then in his will, uh, which was made just before he passed in 1799, he freed all of his own slaves, over 100 slaves, and provided for their education for the younger ones and old age pension-like benefits for the older ones. And he was the only founding father who held slaves to free all of his slaves, all that legally belonged to him. There were some that legally, you know, since they belonged to Martha's first husband uh, in trust for her grandchildren, he couldn't free, but he was the only one to have freed all of them. So you can say he could have done more, and he certainly could have. I found that he did speak out again at least once publicly, and the letters, he probably knew that they would be made public. But when he freed the slaves, among other things, it set the example where, say, slave defenders, defenders in the antebellum South, where defense of slavery actually grew stronger, couldn't use him you know, as a prop to defend it. And he set an example for others and, you know, it did inspire some of the abolitionists with that. So, you know, he has a, a mixed record, but it's a record that's a lot better than most. And he, I think, did put the country on a trajectory to, to end slavery. What's interesting for me, John, isn't so much where, where he ended up. And as you mentioned, there's probably more that he could have done. But the fact that he changed over his lifetime, growing up in a place where having slaves was second nature to the way that he ended up, I think, in his time. I mean, looking, we have Facebook now and everybody argues all the time. Nobody ever changes anybody's mind. The fact that he seems to have changed his mind over his lifetime could be compelling. I think it is. And one of the things I found in researching this book is part of it is just when he started sort of changing Mount Vernon from a basic farm to sort of a, some have called it a mini industrial village. And he had, of course, he had enslaved labor working in things like the, the grist mills and the flour mill and the distillery. He saw that blacks were capable, as he said, blacks are capable of much labor and that slavery was really holding them back and that they are human beings. So I don't know that he ever believed in full equality but he did, I believe, by the end of his life, believe that Black Lives Matter. It is a, such a, I don't know, such a strange place that he ended up. Because on one hand, it's so frustrating. And then you read in your book about not bringing up families, the changes that he made. Well, and not even that, John. It's my understanding that he also just didn't have tolerance for 
a lot of the injustice and prejudice that he saw around him, not just with people of color, but just of anybody who seemed a little different at the time. Yes, that's very true. I mean, the Catholics were subject to much persecution in the colonies that they, it's particularly Virginia, uh, that they couldn't run for public office, serve on juries. Washington had longtime friendships with Catholics, including um, his lieutenant general in in the Continental Army, John Fitzgerald, who after the war, he, you know, had it, you know, at functions at Mount Vernon, put on the board of the Potomac Company, you know, recommended for federal positions. And uh, Fitzgerald would go on to found the Catholic Church in Alexandria that just became Basilica, you know, uh, the St. Mary's Basilica Catholic Church, then, and also even become mayor of Alexandria in where 10 years in the 1780s, in the same state where 10 years ago he couldn't even have uh, voted or run for public office or served on a jury. And Washington was also friends with you know, Charles Carroll, who signed the Constitution. And through the Freemasons, which are kind of a contradiction, they're secret and elite like right. uh, <laughs> uh, other clubs are, but they've always more than most have believed uh, in, in equality and in, 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 in non-discrimination he had met or had corresponded with a Jewish um, uh, lodge brother in, in Rhode Island who invited him to speak in the 1790s at the, during his presidency at the Toro Synagogue. And Washington went there and in a letter to the synagogue said, we give to bigotry no sanction. And uh, that really emphasized that in America, Jews are not just tolerated, they are full partners in the political process and has really been uh, been praised and I you know I'm of the Jewish faith and that really uh, affected me so just reading and and hearing about that so very much the ethnic minorities of his day that Washington promoted not just tolerance but full and for religious and ethnic origins of course save slavery of of course full and equal rights yeah the amount of research you had to do here, I I can't imagine, but some things must have really surprised you. What would you say surprised you the most while you were researching this project? The things that surprised me are things that you you didn't think Washington would have been exposed to that he was, that I had no idea that Washington ate pineapples secretly <laughs> and loved pineapples. And I, when I heard that, I'm like, well, Hawaii wasn't even a, a territory that, then. How would he get pineapples? It turns out his only trip overseas, he never went to Europe, but he did go to Barbados with his older brother, Lawrence, when Lawrence was sick. He tried pineapples there, and then he, he would order pineapples for the rest of his life and wrote about how much he loved them. And then he loved the citrus fruit, true, which you couldn't grow. You know, we have a lot of cold winters here in northern Virginia, but he had built a greenhouse in like right, you know, in between the time he retired as a general and, and president that grew like aloe and palm as, as well as, you know, lemons and oranges and things like that. There's a replica of it at Mount Vernon. So just the things about just the things about modern life that turns out they did have some of that stuff. And it and it is relatable. There was just, for instance, this isn't in my book, but I tweeted about this. There was an uber fact that said, well, George Washington, since Eisenhower, since, excuse me, since dinosaurs were officially named in the 18, and well, in the 19th century, he wouldn't have no idea what they were, but they did know what fossils were. And he looked at fossil exhibitions 
and he also had a fossil of a of a big tooth and he saw an elephant a lion and probably a tiger so he was very curious about seeing things so he even brought a camel to mount vernon so he had a curiosity about all things in life and that's what really surprised me and heartened me such a character i mean so it just uh reminds me of so many entrepreneurs i was looking at the next thing and wondering just always seems to be wondering what's next the book is called george washington entrepreneur and i'm assuming john it's available everywhere right Yes, it's available now on your favorite website or store to buy books. John, thanks a ton for hanging out with us and enlightening us about George Washington as an entrepreneur. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on to talk about my book, George Washington Entrepreneur. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And hey, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm a big fan of old George, but did you know that today is Sylvester Stallone's birthday? Joe's mom and I have been binging all of the Rocky movies this weekend because, you know, like the action and victory over the USSR. Oh, man, I just love Rocky IV when Rocky trains and trains and trains and finally beats that big bad Russian. If you're thinking, hey, Doug, say spoiler alert before giving away Rocky IV, then I'd say that you probably need to catch up on your movies because that classic came out all the way back in 1985. So that's on you, man. Which brings us to today's trivia question. Back in the 1980s, when both America and the USSR were vying to be the economic power of the world, these two countries were ranked number one and number two in worldwide GDP, or uh, gross domestic product, so I'm told. I thought it was something else. But where does Russia rank today in worldwide GDP? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can look in the eye of the tiger. Let's be serious for a minute, folks. What are the odds you're going to win that lottery and millions of dollars? You know the truth. But time and again, you lay your hard-earned money out for a ticket. Why put yourself through that? What if there were a better way? Well, here at Stacking Benjamins Industries, we don't think we know there's a better way. We present today a game sure to surprise and delight the inner you. We call it Throwing Your Money Away. Yeah, I was at the track the other night and this fine little lady come up and she said, 50-50 raffle? Well, I said, no thank you, ma'am, because I just got done and already threw $20 right in the trash. Nothing I like better than getting my paycheck and throwing most of it right away. Feels good. I was buying milk at the Quickie Mart yesterday and they said the lottery was up to $123 billion. Ugh, all that hope and then so much regret later. I knew what I'd do. Well, I just stepped outside and threw $50 into the trash. It felt amazing. Yes, you too could join millions of Americans throwing money away every day. Then, spend days and sometimes weeks hoping that lottery or raffle pays off. And I could buy a new bass boat, take the whole family to Six Flags, maybe get a four-wheeler with Dale Earnhardt's logo on it. Why fill your days building list after list of items you'll never win when you can just throw your money away? And if you act now, we'll throw in a free, no-obligation lighter so you can upgrade your experience and just burn your cash. 
I whipped out my free, no-obligation lighter yesterday and torched $72 from my wallet. No lottery for me. Thanks, SB Industries. That was fun and regret-free. Throwing your money away. Available now, wherever there's a trash can, toilet, or garbage disposal. Hey, fellow Sylvester Stallone fans of the world, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Did you know on today's celebration of Stallone's birthday that his net worth is an estimated $400 million? That'll buy a few Sizzler apps, am I right? But get this, his movies have also raked in a combined $4 billion. That's a billion with a couple of capital B's. This guy might as well be another one of the founding fathers. That's what I'm saying. I mean, he defended the free world by defeating Ivan Drago in Rocky IV. He was a one-man army in Rambo and fought off the bad guy dictators in The Expendables. Now, if that's not a true patriot, then I don't know who is. Well, before I get you all excited talking about our man Sylvie, that's what his buddies call him, I hear. Let's get back to today's trivia. The question was this. Back in the 1980s, America and the USSR were numero uno and numero dos in worldwide GDP. But where's Russia ranked today in worldwide GDP? Today, the U.S. still ranks number one in worldwide GDP. USA! USA! But, uh, you know, we got an annual GDP of $21.44 trillion. Pretty hard to beat! which makes a 23.6 of total GDP. Since the glory days of the 80s, Russia now ranks, sorry to say, number 11 on the list and has an annual GDP of 1.64 trillion. That's lowercase t there. I think you and I both know that we can thank Sylvester Stallone for helping keep the U.S. on top. Hey, yo, uh, it Joe's Ma. Hey, I'm coming back for more flicks, eh? See ya. Adrian! Big thanks to John for stopping by. I love talking history. Our history episodes always American some of, history is probably my favorite topic. Yeah, just some of my favorite episodes. So big thanks to John. Hey, let's start with Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions because our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency this summer, they are putting what you, I'm not talking to that person next to you. I'm talking to you, what you value first. Uh, copious amounts of hot dogs and Doritos. Yes. And that, that beer not, tap that, that you installed like at your house. I did install a beer tap. Yes. It's actually your family and your but time. I'm, but you're at my house and I'm in the basement. I'm so confused. Who's where? What? Fam- Who's on first? Family time with a foamy beverage. It's why they've been buying quality term life insurance. actually simple. You can head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now. To get a free quote, the application is simple. It's online. You'll get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices. I love hearing from our friends who've gone through Haven Life about their success stories, about how quick it was, how easy it was. Uh, you don't have to go through that same process that is just uh, can be ugly. Not ugly today, though, is a question from Brandon. Let's throw out the Haven Lifeline to Brandon. Hey, Joe, OG, Doug, Joe's mom, Joe's mom's cat, and everyone else in the basement, what's up? This is Brandon from Ohio calling with a question regarding taxable accounts. I've been investing steadily into a taxable account for several years. 
Uh, it's all in a S&P 500 index fund. And I had always heard that was the most appropriate type of fund for that account as it's tax efficient. There is not a lot of trading of the stocks. So my question and concern is the lack of diversification. I would like to add maybe an small cap index fund as well, or even a index bond fund to my taxable account. Uh, I guess my concern was the tax implications of that. Is the fact that it's an index fund means there's not a lot of trading, even if it's a small cap or a bond fund, and is that still tax efficient? I would love to hear your thoughts, your discussion uh, regarding this and help me understand it better. So a bit of a background, we are debt-free. We have several hundred thousands in 401ks, Roth IRAs, we have a pension system. All of our money at this time is in equities and we have a good emergency fund. So love the show. Keep up the great work. I'm a size 16 neck, 34 sleeve, <laughs> tailored fit, a press collar, and easy on the starch. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Brandon. You I'll can leave find it to a guy from Ohio to be so pompous <laughs> as to assume that his shirt will be custom. I knew the second that he said Ohio, Brandon, the second he said Ohio with a couple guys from Michigan, I knew that you were in trouble. I think you should put all your money in uh, gold, bare gold funds. That's probably the most appropriate thing for everybody in Ohio. 3X leveraged. 3X, silver and gold, inverse something, I don't know. Inverse futures something. Yeah. I thought you were going to say you you should put it all in maize and gold. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. Yes, you yeah. should do that. I don't think you really have to worry too much about the short-term tax implications of rebalancing your portfolio, I think it's pretty foolhardy to have all of your money tied up in the U.S. large company growth sector and not recognizing that there's lots of other areas. Although that might have been a good um, place to start. I mean, I like the fact he started with one fund. And sometimes yeah, people whatever. just get all, they get all fancy and they, they over-diversify. But now there's that a, he's... There's a really thin line between over and under-diversifying, I think. And But not, you're fixing it. So, attaboy. Well, now that Even he's grown to that size Ohio, 16 okay. neck, uh, it's probably yeah. time to diversify. Even even folks from Ohio can learn new stuff from time to time, so that's good. Uh, under no circumstances would I put any money in fixed income, but that's just uh, me personally. So I don't have to worry about that. And yeah, an ETF for a mutual fund uh, with low turnover is going to suit your purpose. It's still going to have taxes. You're still going to have capital gains and dividends posted to that account just like any other investment account would, but hopefully it's a little more tax efficient. Where you're going to get the biggest impact is if you start fiddling with it. You can't help the fact that your investment positions produce dividends. That's actually a good thing. I love it when people are like, oh, I got to pay taxes on my funds. Oh yeah, why? Because it paid me cash. Okay. Yay. Good job. You got cash from your investments. You have to pay taxes on it. It's not a bad thing. But where you're going to get hit the most is if you started saying, well, today I want to be 50% S&P and 50% small cap. And then six months from now, you're like, actually, I want to be 50% S&P and 50% real estate. Actually, I want to be 40% real estate, 10% bond, and 30% mid cap. I don't even know if that adds up to 200. But my point is, is that if you set it the way you want it and leave it alone, it's going to be much more tax efficient. And there's two ways to accomplish this. The first way 
to rebalance it today. So you've got $100,000 and you say, I want it to be 30, 30, 40, 30% S&P, 30% fixed income and 30 40% small cap. Boom, you make the trades and be done with it. That's going to cause some capital gains, perhaps, if you have some gains within your S&P fund. The other way to do it, which isn't terrible also, is to just start directing your new contributions to the thing that you're trying to build up. If it's way, way, way out of whack presently, that may take you a while to kind of get caught up, but it's also going to produce the lowest uh, taxable way of doing it. So um, if you have some lump sum money, or or the opportunity to kind of kick that off with a bucket of money, that's probably uh, the least least impactful from a tax standpoint. The cool thing, and I haven't done the work just on small cap value, Brandon, but a lot of the time when you diversify into some of these riskier asset classes, just because you have multiple asset classes, you actually, when you put them together, you decrease the risk of what you're actually doing. So your portfolio overall will be a little more smoothed out just because you're taking three different types of risk or two different types of risk instead of one. I don't know that it'll do that just by adding small cap value, but let's say that you added a emerging markets fund and a small cap value fund, you might see that your risk profile, even though you're adding two things where the risk meter has gone up, you may, oh gee, not see uh, a lot more risk with that. You may see, you may see portfolio wide, uh, a nice risk return scenario. Yeah, maybe. The other thing that I would add to this also is that don't forget to look at the allocation of the portfolio from the household level. You know, you mentioned, hey, I've got 401k money, I've got cash, I've got brokerage accounts, maybe you've got Roth IRAs and 529s and so on and so forth. You don't necessarily have to have each individual account be perfectly diversified in and of itself. Maybe you have a really good international position and small company position in your 401k and your spouse has a really great large company position and bond fund position in that one. Then that's perfectly fine to make the household be balanced correctly, even if one particular account doesn't look that way. Yeah. Last thing is, you know, you're talking about taxes and he asks about tax efficiency. We see this so much in online forums, OG. Name a billionaire, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, whoever. OG. OG. My goal is to have their tax bill. Like my goal is not to have not as much money and be tax efficient. Interest. Yes. If I have a monster tax bill. only. Yes. That means I did really well. You know what I mean? Like I feel like people spend so much time with tax efficiency versus asset allocation. We're happy putting all our our money into one fund. Usually it's not the S&P 500. It's some other Vanguard fund, right? We put it in. We get so obsessed with taxes and so obsessed with low fees that we forget that the end game is to have more money. That's the end game. Yeah. Crazy. I can't go get a side hustle because then I have my tax bracket would go up. Right. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. That also sounds like a t-shirt for Brad. (laughs) More work. Nuh-uh. I ain't giving more to the government. Uh, thanks, Brandon, for the question and for bragging about your shirt size, uh, even though Gertrude's going to send you a code and you can brag to our friend Brad when you pick out the shirt. Head to those stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail if you want to be like Brandon and ask us a question. And uh, Brandon, Sparty on, my friend. Sparty on. Just want to say that. Hey, uh, that's going to do it for today. So glad that you're back here with us for another eight weeks of shows. Big thanks to the Fintern for holding down the fort last week. If you're somebody that needs more help in your corner, though, than we can do on just uh, a podcast, a uh, 
a lightweight finance podcast, magazine style, lightweight podcast, and you need real help in your corner. OG and his team of experts are taking clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right. That's going to do it for today. I got to leave the basement and head back to your house and uh, make sure that beer tap is still going, OG. Okay. All right. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Oh, yeah. Sure thing there, Joe. I can uh, I can tell everybody what they should have learned today. Oh, I got to stop doing the voice now? It's amazing. All right, fine. First, take a lesson from our headlines. Even though the market has been especially turbulent lately, you can still be a 401k millionaire if you stick to your plan and maintain a well-diversified portfolio. Start early, and you'll be there before you know it. Second, take a lesson from John Burlow. The United States has been built on entrepreneurship from the outset, and there are still countless opportunities for you to succeed as an entrepreneur if that's your goal. It isn't your goal? Now, think like an entrepreneur, and you could be a top general or maybe a statesman. The overlap can't be dismissed. It's obvious. But the big takeaway? Joe's mom's friend Gertrude hasn't seen the first Rocky. Yeah, you heard me right, Stackers. She has not seen Rocky. She has no idea who the Italian stallion or the pride of Philadelphia is. I guess Joe's mom and I are binging the Rockies one more time to culture the whole basement on the true cornerstone of American history. Big thanks to John Burlow for joining us today. You can find a link to his book on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Rocky is pretty much the most amazing movie star of all time. Okay, fine. Not that last part after the slash, but he is. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it appears I've fallen and I can't get up. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Hey, amazing Steve Stewart. Uh, That was pretty much the best Sylvester Stallone impersonation I've ever heard. Make sure that one gets featured on the show, would you? Thanks, buddy. This is the after show. Please don't talk about it. We're not talking about any money today. In fact,
We have a special guest. Yeah, check out who just came down to the basement. What's up? <laughs> that is that is Nick, the infamous uh, Nick, who uh, became a big-time craps gambler. Yeah, right. Hook him. Yeah, hook him horns. Uh, hook him horns, yes. We'll see where my kids end up. So, no money talk. This is going to be PG-13 rated, just so you know. So, if you got a 12-year-old in there, ixnay on the after show A, okay? So I sent you this um, thing that I'd like you to play, Joe. And more specifically, Nick, I'd like your opinion of it as someone who may have recently gone through something like this. I'll set the stage a little bit. It's two people walking up to the front door, knocking on the door. They appear to be stark naked. And just for the record, fairly attractive individuals. A man and a woman, pretty attractive. What do you mean Nick just went through this? (laughs) Well, you'll see. You'll see. I'm just kind of curious. Is it like something on uh, something on on Facebook that I didn't catch, that Dad didn't catch? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no. Deal. No. I mean, like, just went through this. Let's say ten years ago versus you and I going through it never because it didn't exist when we were kids. So. Gotcha. All right. All right. Go to we town. Planet. Here we go. Hi, yeah. I'm Sue. This is Derek. We're here because your son just looked us up online. You know, to watch us. Matt. Matt, darling, there's some people here to see you. So he watches you online? Yeah, you know, on his laptop. iPad, PlayStation. Mm, His phone, your phone. Smart TV projector. Yeah, anyway, we usually perform for adults, but your son's just a kid. He might not know how relationships actually work. We don't even talk about consent, do we? No, we just get straight to it. Yeah, and I'd never act like that in real life. Nah. Hey, Maddie. You all right? Okay, Sandro, stay calm. You know what to do here. All right, Maddie. It sounds like it's time to have a talk about the difference between what you see online and real-life relationships. No judgment. Many young Kiwis are using porn to learn about sex. Keep it real online. Get help and advice at keepitrealonline.govt.nz. There's always something better when a Kiwi says sex. Sex. (laughs) Well, I just thought it was really funny because I laughed at it. I showed it to my wife. Then I showed it to my son, who's 13, and literally he saw the first five minutes of it and like, like yeah, five seconds of it, he's like, I'm out, I'm out. I said, no, no, you got to watch it. I'm just wondering how embarrassing, you know, that felt as a... Yeah, that's a, a, that's a, a young uh, adult. That's a bad day when they come to the door. <laughs> when they come to the door. Because I understand that's what happened to you, Nick, right? I mean, like yeah, you right. had your, your favorite uh, Google Trends showed up right in your house. Yeah, one of, hopefully not. <laughs> Because it's not legal in 32 states. Yeah. This stuff I Google. Okay, that's um, sitting right here. Yeah, Easy. we were talking about uh, being an executor. You mentioned that uh, you've been an executor. You have a family member who's told you that you would be one. And uh, I was remembering a story of a friend of mine who called me one day and he said, Hey, can you, uh, can you do me a favor? And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. What, what's up? He goes, no, listen, this is a really big deal. Sure, what's up? And he says, listen, if I die, and I don't think I'm going to, but if I, if, if I die, I need you to do me a solid. And I said, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I could do anything. He goes, listen, you Dude, have to come I to my this? house. Did I see this on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm? I think I did. I don't this, know. This same thing. Yeah. I need you to come to my house and get all the porn. Right. <laughs> Because I got kids. That was an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
Oh, where, okay. Maybe he stole it from that then. Jeff Garland tells him he's got to come get the porn while he's going in for surgery because he might die. So, yeah. of course, he goes upstairs and he's rummaging around and he finds like the back of the closet in the bedroom and the dude's wife comes home. And she seems to be rummaging around the closet, and he's got like a handful of porn in his hand. Obviously. <laughs> and of course, of course, you know, Jeff Garland then throws, uh, throws uh, Dave, uh, tells his name. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know you're talking about. Yeah, throws him under the bus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so do you have a, do you have a porn buddy? <laughs> I mean, not in the same sense that you would think, but the, a porn executor, I so, guess. Well, that's you. That's you. You gotta, you gotta come over to my house and make sure that that is gone. Not me. I think that's your uh, son's job. Oh boy. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month, and I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.